Today, we're joined by Steph Lowe. Steph is a nutritionist with an undergraduate degree in sport and exercise science and a postgraduate degree in human nutrition. She is the author of Low Carb Healthy Fat Nutrition and The Real Food Athlete. She is also the founder of LCHF Reset, LCHF Endurance, and The Natural Nutritionist, which is a thriving clinic based in Melbourne, Australia. She is also the host of Health, Happiness, and Humankind podcast, my longtime friend and professional mentor. In this episode, Steph and I have an in-depth discussion on the specific nutrient requirements for females of reproductive age, starting from the foundations of overall energy intake, progressing to macronutrient requirements, and building up to the specific nutrients required to support ovulation and hormone balance. We do place an emphasis on plant-based nutrition. However, this discussion is relevant to every female of reproductive age wanting to nurture their health and hormones through nutrition. I hope you enjoy. So for today's topic, it's one that I really wanted to take a deeper dive with you on. We obviously talk about the menstrual cycle a lot on the show Um, And it's certainly something that you and I work with our clients in the clinic at TNN. Um, But what we haven't covered so far is a more broader view on the focus for optimizing our menstrual cycle from a food point of view. And then certainly the more micro focus around what are some potential nutrient inadequacies that we need to keep on our radar and therefore, you know, what should we be including in the diet? So yeah, I'd love to hear from you more on, yeah, why you think this topic is so important and then we'll take a closer look. Yeah. Well, like you said, Steph, we um, we talk a lot about the menstrual cycle. So we talk about it almost all, not all day long, but a good majority of our clients. It's a it's a very relevant discussion. You know, we always say the menstrual cycle is a is a barometer of health. It's that monthly report card. So we, you know, we often are tapping in with our clients on the menstrual cycle. You know, did it come? Didn't it come? How long was the cycle? What was the bleed like? How did you feel? What was the PMS like? And and then obviously the conversation gets a little deeper as we're getting towards, um, you know, fertility and and conception being the goal. Um, But understanding sort of the detail around how, you know, the macro and the micro can influence the cycle, I think is a really important discussion because sometimes we can get, you know, sidetracked with, you know, fancier, you know, um, testing and supplements and or, you know, pharmaceuticals. Uh, And I think it's really important to come back to the basics, you know, some of the basics around how um, nutrition um, can impact the female menstrual cycle. And and I work with a lot of plant-based eaters, um, whether that be entirely plant-based or predominantly plant-based. And it's an area of such growing interest, you know, even even those that aren't plant-based, I so often have clients say to me, you know, I want to take a more plant-focused approach to my nutrition or I want to reduce my reliance on animal proteins. Uh, And obviously that sort of approach to nutrition, you know, adds a different dimension to this discussion of looking at nutrient adequacy or risk of nutrient inadequacy. Um, So that's something that I wanted to bring to this discussion as well. But, you know, you and I both like doing things fairly methodically and thinking about things in order and, you know, looking at the foundations first. And I really think that first and foremostly for women, 
it's looking at how much we're eating um, and if we're eating enough. And so often in clinic, it's it's actually that there's not enough being eaten. And this is this is risky, right? Because if there's not enough being eaten, you know, total energy intake will impact our body's ability to ovulate. It'll impact that communication between the hypothalamus and the ovaries, um, the HPO axis, we call it, uh, and it can essentially shut down ovulation. So not eating enough in, in itself is a risk for impacting the menstrual cycle. And then, of course, if we're not eating enough, so, you know, if we're not taking care of that macro, um, then it can have a flow-on effect to the micro and we might not be getting the micronutrients that we need if we're not eating, you know, adequate total amount of calories. Yeah, and it's a cultural thing as well, right? You and I work with women and a lot of the time they've got this experience with some kind of element of diet culture and it might not have just been 1200 calories but often there is a lot of education there's a lot of unlearning required to truly understand what we need especially when that there is a greater output like in the case of our athletes which Ooh. we obviously see as anyone that does exercise but that's a story for another time <laughs> you know this this cultural conditioning is a big part of the problem you know I know we're talking specifically about plant-based but you know in just one example that comes up all the time when I'm talking about you know portions and how to build your plate and how we create satiety and blood sugar control and I might talk about something like three eggs Nine and a half out of 10 women look at me like, oh my God, that's so much food. Even when I've said, you know, we're not snacking, we're eating for, you know, this certain satiety or meal frequency um, approach, you know, we're again, like I'm seeing this time and time again. So it's it's very likely that under eating is a huge part of what we're seeing off the back of this, this diet culture and, and certainly the 1200 calories, which seems to be still floating around, unfortunately. Oh, it is. You know, you look at, maybe we won't name names, but you look at many <laughs> of these like challenges being promoted and put into place by big name franchises and they're centred around 1,200 calories per day. And so, yeah, it very much creates this mindset or this belief that like 1,200 calories is considered some sort of like benchmark for you know, for nutritional intake. And most most women would be just like flabbergasted to know that that would barely take care of their basal metabolic needs, um, let alone sort of um, the extra requirements needed for any training and exercise that they're doing. So, you know, when you and I are talking to clients around maybe like a baseline of 1,600 calories and then, you know, somewhere up to like 2,000, 2,500 calories, depending on the output and the exercise that's being done, you're um you're breaking down all of these like preconceived notions and under and beliefs around um how much energy is required so yeah it's just it's it's a challenge that you know the diet culture that's sort of been created but it's amazing how differently women feel when it's like they're given the permission to eat more they're told you know you're allowed to eat more and in actual fact your body needs to have more and um, it's for some women really freeing. And then also for those women that are having, you know, ovulation issues, whether it be um, just a few anovulatory cycles or um, more longer standing amenorrhea and a condition called hypothalamic amenorrhea, 
um, sometimes they're not even aware of the fact that they're under eating and, and creating this inadequate energy deficit. So it's that that permission of of um, of knowing that they can eat more and it will actually help them not not sort of not get in the way of, of their health or body compositional goals. And there's a huge psychological component naturally, which we must appreciate. You know, I think hearing that for the first time can um, elicit a lot of, you know, stress and anxiety, understandably. And what I tend to talk to my clients about is, you know, all right, they've they've obviously come to me for my advice because they respect my, you know, my education and my approach and my my training and you know my time at the crease per se in terms of clinical experience. Um, so I have to ask them to trust me to start until very soon they get that first-hand experience, you know. It's not until someone literally, you know, gives it a try, even if they are a bit nervous or understandably anxious, you don't know what you don't know. So I think being able to just start gradually, no one's saying start eating 2,500 calories, by the way, but start gradually and and notice how you're feeling, um, you know, a decrease in certain symptoms that you're presenting with, you know, if there's changes in ovulation or the menstrual cycle, that's not necessarily going to change overnight, right? So as always, we've got to be looking at other benefits or symptom reduction that we can attach on to straight away. And we can talk about some of those, but this is what I'm asking for, a bit of, you know, understanding and and. Uh, appreciation of the process until you can get that first-hand experience that it is going to course correct some of the menstrual cycle challenges that have been presenting over recent years or even decades. Yeah and you're right like it definitely won't happen overnight so we're usually looking at 100 days minimum Mm -hmm. to see the the um, sort of like the impacts of under eating being undone by eating enough and sometimes it can take more because, like you said, we can't, you can't necessarily jump up to, to over 2,000 calories a day without it being a process of adjusting to meal size and what it feels like and, and for some people the, like, the mental barriers associated with that. Um, but really three months minimum. And then, of course, yes, you're looking for what are those like little signals, just those little indicators that you're on, on the right path. Um, so is it that you are feeling more satiated? There's less less in the way of um, irritability day to day. Mood feels more stable. Um, you know, if, if they're still cycling, um, are you starting to feel better in the lead up to the cycle? So there's these, these indicators of change in the right direction, even, you know, even when we know the, the big changes um, won't necessarily happen overnight. Yeah, that's incredible advice and why we've always got to have that discussion around the more, I guess, what might seem sort of smaller (laughs) benefits but have that really powerful long-term end result. Yeah, and for a lot of people it's not small. Like how many people Mm. would you get coming back to you, you know, following an initial consultation who would say, oh, my gosh, I haven't needed to snack. Mm-hmm. I felt so in control throughout my day. And, you know, what I actually did go from having one eggs to three eggs or I did go from having one tablespoon of protein powder to three in my smoothie and I added some chia seeds and I felt I felt so much better. 
I felt like I had appetite control. I wasn't craving sweets and therefore there wasn't that sort of mental game that I was playing with myself or battle that I was playing with myself around what I couldn't couldn't eat at that three o'clock time in the afternoon. And, you know, before the changes have happened, they might seem small, but then when people actually feel them, like it's not small, it's life-changing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I just... I think um, when let's say your big goal is for your cycle to come back <laughs> and that might take three or more months, um, it's easy to sort of consider something like, oh, my mood's a bit more stable as small, but, yeah, absolutely to acknowledge the flow-on effect of that. And and then, of course, you know, we've had clients who have like quite literally resolved 20 years of IBS. <laughs> <laughs> By yeah. not eating as frequently and healing their, you know, healing their gut and, you know, just little, little fantastic, incredible changes that all add up exponentially to, to create optimal health. So yeah. I'm sure we could talk about the benefits of that forever. Um, <laughs> but in terms of macros, let's have a look a bit more closely at our macronutrients, our carbs, fats and proteins. Yeah, well, again, starting with our, like starting with the foundations and then getting smaller. But macronutrient-wise, you know, we all have different versions of what that mac- ideal macronutrient profile looks like, right? Based on whether you come from a, a lower carb, healthy fat um, background or high protein background, or whether it's sort of a whole food plant-based diet background. Um, but I think, you know, macronutrient profile or composition does really need to be applied at an individual level. In saying that, um, we know that there are some macronutrient profiles that I think are just going to exacerbate hormonal imbalances in women. Uh, and from a plant-based perspective, you know, in, in the eyes of some people, um, a whole food plant-based diet would be considered, you know, the, the, the gold standard of plant-based eating. And I just, I just I couldn't disagree with that more. Um, in the sense that last time I checked the macronutrient profile of a whole food plant-based diet, um, which is different to, let's say, a vegan diet um, or a simply a plant-based diet, the macronutrient profile of a whole food plant-based diet is somewhere like 70 to 80% carbohydrate. Um, so 70 to 80% carbohydrate, which means there's only 20 to 30% left for fats and protein. And I have I have a real issue with this and a real concern. And I know that you're sitting there thinking, holy crap. Um, I'm scratching my head. Like, how did we get here? But I can totally see how we got here. <laughs> I hate to I hate to marginalize. I'm just gonna say it. I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say it. But um I think it would have been men that that primarily um, created this this macronutrient profile and really celebrated this as a way of eating because I think anyone that you know really understands the the female body and and what's needed to support ovulation, which you know is the hero of of the menstrual cycle, would appreciate that seventy to eighty percent carbohydrate is too much. Of course, we don't want too little carbohydrate, especially for somebody who's um, experiencing something like hypothalamic amenorrhea. We don't want too little carbohydrate, um, but we can certainly achieve adequate carbohydrate intake at much, much less than 70 to 80% carbohydrates. Um, That would be at least double what um, really the average female needs in terms of carbohydrate as Mm -hmm. a percentage of total energy intake. But in some hormonal profiles and pictures, 
So something like an insulin-resistant polycystic ovarian syndrome, and we know that insulin resistance is a driver for about 70% of PCOS cases, that insulin resistance is just going to get worse and worse and worse on a diet of 70-80% carbohydrates. Yeah, it's fascinating. I'm loving all the burns in, in the backdrop. It's sounding <laughs> very, very therapeutic where you are today, Ali. Yeah. Um, but you know, this is this is interesting because there are a lot of like quote unquote experts in the field who will criticize a low carb diet. And this is where language matters, right? As we've noticed more so than ever in recent times. What are we really talking about? You know, we're obviously not talking about keto. We've made that clear. And if we don't take a close look at the carbs, there won't be enough room for adequate protein and healthy fat. So we have to be able to have this understanding around all the, the relevance of all macronutrients rather than just getting like too caught up in like this, this blanket statement that low carb is un, dangerous for women or unhealthy for women or whatever myths we see being discussed in that hormone space. Yeah. It's the extremes of low carb, like you said, which is keto for those people that sort of get confused and overlap the two. But, you know, low carb is is anywhere really up to like 150 to 200 grams of carbohydrates per day. And that really is an adequate amount of carbohydrate to, um, to keep most females cycling, like to support ovulation. So we don't need to be afraid of, of lower carbohydrate nutrition. Um, but obviously for some women, they do need to be concerned about ketogenic nutrition. Mm. Um, but in, in the case of the insulin-resistant PCOS, like that ketogenic or for a short period of time or, you know, a more sustainable version of lower-carb nutrition, that might actually be what's needed to reverse the to reverse the hormonal imbalance, which is leading to the irregular or the, um, the absent, uh, absent cycles. And I love this post that you posted the other day that, you know, PCOS is, is, not, a, um, is not a result of a metformin deficiency. Um, it's a result of, like in most cases of PCOS, it's a result of high insulin, which is going to be perpetuated by high carbohydrate intake. I know, and that's a real tragedy because we're so conditioned to accept that first line, that standard of care, which is almost always going to be a pharmaceutical intervention, that we haven't even considered the root, there is a root cause, right, that we haven't identified. And the number of women that you know, no judgment. It's it's a reflection of our our system and our our healthcare system, but they they don't really even understand what PCOS is, and they certainly have not been told that the driver is insulin resistance, which is truly one of the more like straightforward things to address. You know, mm -hmm. we're not talking about this complicated communication system between the HPO axis, which can sometimes take, you know even years to course correct yeah. insulin resistance is pretty straightforward <laughs> yeah 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 a yeah. um, couple of months if not less to turn it around and make the difference well you can see improvements in four weeks we've yeah. seen that with the metabolic health picture in, in relation to the pandemic like it's it's a function of our culture and our refined carbohydrates and our food pyramid a lot of the time yeah and look, a lot of people would say that you know, whole food, plant-based, obviously it's whole foods, it's not refined carbohydrates. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you're looking at 70, 80%, it, it is too much because it is still taking away from healthy fats and protein. And when we look at the micronutrient requirements that could be impacted by, by plant-based nutrition, 
and I'm talking specifically zinc, iodine, um, vitamin A and heme iron, not all of these, but these could certainly be exacerbated if the bulk of the energy intake is coming from carbohydrates and mm-hmm. there isn't the protein and the healthy fats there to support these nutrient requirements. So that that macro, that sort of short-sighted view of macro that is the 70 80% carbohydrates has a negative flow-on effect to the micro because you just, you just can't get the other foods that you need on the plate. Well, that's a really good point, right? So not only, you know, the, the macros have obviously been quite out of balance and, and continuing, truthfully, I'll say it, continually perpetuated by some people in the vegan community, but then, yeah, it makes it impossible to achieve those key nutrients that do have to be examined more closely on a plant-based diet, right? Mm-hmm. We'll talk about them in detail, but the reason why we bring up these four is because they are the ones you are are at risk of being low in, not saying it's going to happen, but it certainly needs to be more of a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, it's clear why we have to start with the macro. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's look at zinc. Yeah, I thought you would never ask. Um, <laughs> let's dial into the details. So um, evidence does show that vegetarians and of course vegans are at risk of um, zinc deficiency so 2009 studies showed that there was higher prevalence of deficiency in the plant-based community and this is because in plant-based foods or plant-based sources of zinc so things like nuts seeds legumes um, these contain anti-nutrients or you could call them or phytates which inhibit the absorption of the zinc so just like iron I think it's commonly sort of appreciated that plant-based sources of iron aren't as bioavailable as as non-plant-based sources of iron Um, but the exact same story for zinc so those plant-based sources of zinc they're wonderful they still offer zinc but absorption is going to be impacted or bioavailability is going to be impacted. And this has flow-on effects to the cycling female because zinc can deplete quite rapidly. So, you know, it could be a a matter of months before zinc starts to drop on an entirely plant-based diet, that is. And it can have a flow-on effect to irregular periods and skin problems. You know, zinc is so crucial for so many different enzymatic um, reactions in the body. And one of the biggest things that I celebrate about zinc is its anti-testosterone effects. So again, if we're looking at a hormonal condition like polycystic ovarian syndrome, low zinc levels could be disastrous for that or really help. Mm. It would really get in the way of reversing that condition because it is essentially a condition of excess androgens slash testosterone. Yeah, when I think about zinc, I certainly also think about progesterone. I'm not sure if you were going to talk about that, but, um, you know, helping the pituitary gland to release follicle-stimulating hormones, so FSH, encouraging ovulation, like <laughs> the list goes on. Like it's really, really important. I had, I wanted to ask, is that accepted in the plant-based community that the bioavailability is different or is that something that you think is not discussed enough? Interesting question. I guess it's subjective, isn't it? Um mm. I, it's definitely documented, you know, like the American Dietetic Association would document zinc as being like one of the seven key nutrients that they've highlighted as being at risk of deficiency of on a plant-based diet, uh, which is a great start. Mm. It's not something I see being talked about a lot though. So 
yes, I do think that there's probably a, a lack of understanding around um, the risks of zinc adequacy on a plant-based diet. And it bothers diet. me because then we're as, we're as guilty as like picking up a carton of milk and looking at the milligrams of calcium and saying that you can't possibly achieve that with, you know, tahini or dark leafy greens or what have you, but we're not just interested in the milligrams. It's obviously the bioavailability, so how much your body is actually going to utilise yeah. for the functions that we've been discussing. So this is just what I find quite frustrating because there are certain people, especially in the vegan community, that will argue until the end of time that, you know, there's there's sort of no concerns for nutrient deficiencies, which I I just like really disagree with and again I'm not saying that anyone's going to end up with nutrient deficiencies but as we've discussed like you know you have to take more care it's pretty clear to me that these key nutrients are ones that need to be on your radar and that you can't just be sort of adding ad hoc or even neglecting there needs to be a key focus of what foods you're including how often and you know obviously how much yeah well I think you know people are lured into plant-based nutrition because you know the the benefits are you know they've sort of shouted from the rooftops from these staunch sort of whole food plant-based uh quote-unquote experts and of course there are benefits of plant-based nutrition but there are also risks and downsides if it's not done correctly and I guess that I, that's my mission in life is to um, help bring a level of reality to those people that do want to eat plant-based and make sure that they're doing it safely and doing it well because you can do it safely and well if you're aware of the inadequacies. And I agree with what you said. Like there are absolutely risks of deficiency and inadequacy. You can't go into plant-based nutrition thinking that you don't need to make changes or you don't need to test or you don't need to supplement because there are just there are gaps. There are so many nutrients which are either lacking from the diet or they're less bioavailable. So the risk of inadequacy becomes greater. Um, zinc is one of them, as we've just highlighted, which is really relevant to the female menstrual cycle. Um, but another one is iodine, which again is earmarked by the American Dietetic Association as being sort of one of those seven key nutrients that that um, could be missing on a plant-based diet. Um, last time I looked at rates, rates of deficiency in vegetarians, so those still consuming some animal proteins, were about 25% being um, iodine deficient. And in vegans, it's 80%. <laughs> so Whoa. it's, yeah, it's high. Yeah. It's high, it's high. And, you know, we've we've long associated iodine as being important for thyroid function. Mm -hmm. you know, that's Or, you know, iodine is implicated in thyroid function. It goes both ways as to how it might affect thyroid function depending on the condition there. But uh, like a recent paper, a 2021 paper, was indicating that iodine impacts um, ovulation and therefore fertility, sorry, mm. lack of iodine will impact fertility and ovulation because it's so important to the ovaries and the endometrium. So deficiency, and we've seen it's prevalent, um, is going to cause problems. It's fascinating. You know, a lot of people don't know the history of iodine in countries like Australia. Like notoriously we've had issues with iodine deficiency for a long time, so much so that children used to be given pills in school until we mandated the fortification of iodine or iodized salt in bread, right? So this is the thing, you know, the iodine deficiency is already there and then they put it in breads and cereals, but we're not really 
eating, well, we shouldn't be eating lots of breads and cereals, should be. And we certainly don't have a culture that includes those more Japanese-style foods, you know, seaweed and, and nori and dulse flakes that are going to be, I guess, offsetting what's going on from a soil point of view. So we're already seeing a risk amongst, I guess, many Australians. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention plant-based eaters. So that's quite significant to me if we're talking about, again, whole foods where we wouldn't be relying on those fortification um, solutions that we did put into place in Australia many years ago now. Yeah. And look, it's it's relatively simple to to get the iodine that you need. It doesn't take much in the way of dulse flakes or mm. um, nori, nori sheets or wakami to get adequate iodine intake. You know, requirements are low. So just bringing those things in on a, reg- on a relatively regular basis can, can do what is required. You don't necessarily need to look outwardly at supplementation. In actual fact, I'd suggest you're not looking at, at supplementation as a first port of call, but you are using those foods that naturally carry the iodine to support with adequacy and, and what your body needs. Mm. So how do, how do you sort of work out how much someone on a plant-based diet needs in the way of those foods you mentioned? Um, well, in terms of zinc, we know pretty categorically that um, their requirements are at least for like an Australian female looking at 11 milligrams per day mm-hmm. um, because we know that absorption is about 50% less when we're looking at plant-based sources. So it's about ensuring that they're like every day they're, they're including their nuts, their seeds, and of course their legumes, but doing things that might increase the absorption. So for example, soaking their legumes and then also looking at how they're eating them and what they're eating around like their zinc containing foods in particular so trying to avoid having like synthetic folate or folic acid um, supplementation around their zinc containing foods and avoiding having their iron supplement around their zinc containing foods as well because these could further impact the zinc absorption from those plant-based sources Mm, yeah fascinating and that's pretty easy to do so if you're looking at like a like a lower carbohydrate, healthier fat approach to plant-based nutrition where you are eating lots of nuts and seeds and you're not afraid of the the healthy fats in there, then you're naturally going to be eating plenty of these zinc-carrying foods. (laughs) And then when it comes to iodine, it's just a a couple of serves a week of um, seaweed products, Mm -hmm. dulse, um, nori, Uh, you don't need much to get to that iodine requirement, that iodine intake. But then, of course, there would be circumstances where we might need to do more, and that's going to be relative to the individual's pathology. Yes, yes, for sure. Now, vitamin A is one that's interesting to me. Um, I'll hand over to you in a second, but obviously we're talking about the menstrual cycle today, but I've been looking a lot at the research around the role of preformed vitamin A, so from animal sources in relation to the prevention of viral infections. There is some um, experts postulating that um, deficiencies increase the likelihood of adverse events. So it's certainly an area that's really important in terms of the pandemic. But from a mental cycle point of view, I'd love to hear from you more about, yeah, what 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 we know to be true about vitamin A. Yeah, well... When it comes to vitamin A, this is this is going to have flow-on effects, you know, as well to ovulation. And the reason I wanted to highlight it is because 
I don't think it does get talked about enough in the plant-based community. You know, you asked before about zinc and whether that that is highlighted in the community. And I think, you know, I said zinc, I was not sure. And I think there's some people talking about it. And, you know, the American Dietetic Association has highlighted it. Um, but when it comes to vitamin A, it's not really being discussed a lot. And that is because um, on paper, you can get enough of um, beta carotene, which is a type of carotenoid, which the body can convert into vitamin A, this provitamin A. But that conversion process, depending on your genetic um, representation, so that there is a gene in, implicated here, the BCO1 gene, that's going to impact um, vitamin A availability in the provitamin form that's needed for for ovulation. So that's where I think in the plant-based community, we really need to be talking about how much vitamin A is needed and considering that for some people that conversion is going to be less than optimal depending on their genetic representation. So, so what, go on. <laughs> <laughs> that pregnant pause, um, you go, what were you going to say? <laughs> no, I was just thinking more about that in detail. Again, I I don't think this is acknowledged. I think that um, conversations like this are certainly quite nuanced because, yeah, it's not as simple as just accepting that um, it is going to be an easy nutrient to achieve, especially when there is obviously a genetic role. Mm, yeah, exactly. Um, it's a similar conversation to like um, the omega-3 fatty acid one, you know, we know that EPA, DHA are the essential fatty acids that we need and, and, you know, that's relevant to hormone production as well. And on a plant-based diet, it's more that the ALA, the alpha-linoleic acid that's that's available. And depending on the genetic variant that's there in any given individual, that conversion of ALA to the EPA, DHA is going to differ um, and in some cases be, you know, incredibly inefficient. It's the same when it comes to vitamin A. So, like I said, that conversion of the beta carotene to the, the retinol. There are some things that can be done to support the optimal absorption of um, plant-based sources of vitamin A, which then, you know, you would hope that that would result in greater conversion and therefore likeliness of reaching our, our daily requirements. Uh, and this is where, you know, you've got to buck the, buck the goal of 70, 80% carbohydrates because it's actually actually healthy fats, you know, from things like our avocados and olive oils and flaxseed oils that are going to help with the absorption of these beta carotenes, these plant-based sources of vitamin A. So it all, it all goes hand in hand, right? Um, get the macronutrient balance closer to optimal and that will start to support the micronutrient balance as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what are your favourite vitamin A foods? Think orange. Yeah. <laughs> um, think orange foods, sweet potato, um, pumpkins. Um, but then, of course, greens. Like you really can't turn a blind eye to greens either as being a great source of vitamin A. And, you know, these these should not really be foods missing from a, a well-crafted plant-based diet. And then, of course, if there are people that are wanting to eat, you know, um, certain animal proteins, uh, you know, things like cod liver oil would be fabulous, you know, if you wanted to sort of channel your energy into um, a few sort of animal-based products. Cod liver oil is fantastic. Eggs for, for some people on a largely plant-based diet are really sort of accessible and, and obviously contain vitamin A. 
but yeah, eating your orange, orange vegetables, carrots, I don't think I said, and, and then your deep greens as well. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. All right, lucky last is iron. So you've already mentioned slightly that conversation of, of heme, so of animal sources of iron versus non-heme. Um, so, yeah, what are we seeing here in terms of the role of the menstrual cycle? Well, with heme iron, it's an interesting one. It can obviously it affects it affects ovulation and it can go the other way as well. So um, iron deficiency can, I know it sounds counter, counterproductive, counterintuitive, but it can actually perpetuate heavy bleeds as well. Um, which is which is a problem, obviously, in women who are eating largely plant-based who, who may be eating inadequate amounts of iron, which is very possible because, you know, it's, it is actually quite hard to achieve adequate iron intake on a largely plant-based diet because of the, the lack of bioavailability in non-heme iron. Um, it just means that the plant-based eater has to be eating more iron to get closer to the, the daily requirements and if they're not able to keep that up, which can be quite challenging, you know, when you're talking one-on-one with someone about, you know, trying to achieve 32 milligrams of iron per day on a, on a plant-based diet, it, it's a lot of food that needs to be eaten. So there, there is risk of inadequacy and it's, it's documented as well. So we have to make sure that that's being taken care of. And I think in the context of sort of awareness, um, iron is probably up there in terms of, you know, the the awareness levels of those already plant-based or those considering going plant-based. But I think bringing it back to understanding how important this is for supporting the cycling female, like we need to just stay on top of it and make sure that people don't get complacent um, about their iron levels and iron intake. Yeah, and that's the other consideration. You know, iron, as we always talk about, has these unique life cycles to its requirements. So it's different for a male completely, but then it's obviously different depending on the female that we're discussing this with and and where she's at from a menstrual cycle point of view. Well, yeah, exactly. And then, of course, as they're looking at sort of preconception or pregnancy or Mm -hmm. postpartum, then, you know, that 32 milligrams that I just mentioned would be quite different. So Mm -hmm. it is important, I think, for women to also be aware of their individual needs and where they're at in their their stage of life and and consider getting one-on-one support or Mm -hmm. at least, you know, a lot more education around how they can satisfy their requirements and oh my God, like we've just talked about four nutrients today. <laughs> this is like, this is the tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. when it comes to understanding and awareness around the micronutrients that are that are really crucial to, to women's health. Absolutely. And that the role of like adequate testing, as we always discuss, because, you know, it's pretty well accepted that deficiencies can take time. So it's about having a schedule there to obviously catch any potential decline and adjust the diet and have a closer look and at the same time optimize the food that's going in and and the microbiome so the absorption and really understand their bio individuality as well because it's not just a matter of saying that you know obviously everyone needs the same or that everyone's going to convert the same food which is again that nuanced discussion that we have to have especially when it comes to women of menstrual cycle age yeah yeah absolutely 
So did you mention your top iron foods? <laughs> <laughs> iron foods, I mean, I I do talk to my clients a lot about um, tofu tempeh and the safety mm-hmm. of choosing, you know, organic, non-genetically modified tofu um, or tempeh. Uh, and obviously looking at, at clients that might have thyroid issues and making sure they're doing that correctly and, and dosing um, correctly. But I do love that as a source of iron. Um, and then also looking at hemp products. Of course, legumes are a source of iron, but we've got to make sure that they're soaked, ideally, you know, cooked slowly and long um, to to better support the breakdown and the absorption. Uh, And then, you know, our steamed deep green vegetables are a great source of iron and then there's going to be traces in in our nuts and seeds as well. Beautiful. Yeah, so they're definitely there. It's definitely there in the diet. It's just the amount that can be challenging to build up to, which is why, yeah, it's important to to be in touch with your pathology and to track things along the way. Because as you said, you know, some of these deficiencies don't necessarily appear straight away and they mightn't, you know, especially in the case of something like vitamin A, which is a fat-soluble vitamin, or B12, which we haven't gone into today, but, you know, that can take two years for a B12 deficiency to appear. And things like iron and zinc, that can that can happen actually a little more quickly, you know, like three to six months. But, you know, sort of just assessing how you feel after one month of plant-based eating um, versus how you're feeling after two years or five years, um, it's certainly going to be a different story. So you can't get complacent after just a couple of months of quote-unquote, you know, I felt great going plant-based. Mm. And the examples that you've given time and time again about like you can't just go on auto vegan pizza from Domino's because you want to be a vegan, right? You've got to do the work and have a look at the key nutrients and as a result, the key foods that you need to prioritize on a daily or weekly basis in the case of iodine. And then obviously find a way to integrate that long term because it's a way of life that you do need to consider these nutrients over the long term and reassess in certain periods as you discuss with the specific example from today being obviously preconception, pregnancy and postpartum when we're talking about women of menstrual cycle age. So it's been fantastic. Yeah. And I think like the other thing just to highlight is that, you know, some of this conversation is very relevant to women that are still eating animal products, Mm -hmm. right? Um, You know, how often are we managing with um, zinc inadequacies or um, potential iodine deficiencies or fears around sort of excess vitamin A consumption and, and iron inadequacy, I should say, in, in women that still eat animal protein. So it's still relevant to, to women not on an entirely plant-based diet. It's just that I guess that the level of importance becomes next level when animal proteins are being um, largely or entirely excluded from the diet. 100%. Those four are key nutrients that I would look at with all of my clients, regardless of dietary preference. And, you know, we obviously don't overconsume animal sources anyway. So we're looking at, you know, a moderate protein intake and then still a largely plant-based approach for someone who is including an including animal sources. So we're still wanting to highlight what um, plant-based foods are available for everyone. So it's absolutely relevant. Yeah, it definitely is. Amazing. I've loved this discussion. I think it's just fascinating. Obviously, there are more nutrients that we can look at, but those Mm -hmm. four are are very relevant to the menstrual cycle. And, of course, with iron, you know, the heavy periods that you mentioned and something that I discuss all the time, um, that needs to be um, a key part of the discussion. 
Have you been thinking about taking a more plant-based approach to your nutrition for the sake of your health? Or are you already plant-based and in need of further education, guidance, and mealtime inspiration? Well, if the answers are yes or yes, I think you would love Plant-Based Kickstarter. It's a five-week online program that I developed with the health-conscious plant-based eater in mind. It includes one week of education, four weeks of meal planning, and weekly live seminars with me. I'm Ellie. I have a bachelor's degree in health science, majoring in exercise science and nutrition. I'm now a holistic nutritionist with a love of yoga. I'm a dog mum and I'm a runner. And I have a particular interest in supporting digestive health, hormone balance and metabolic health for the active and or plant-based female. In completing plant-based Kickstarter, you can expect improved digestion, greater confidence around your food choices, an understanding of how to prepare for and maintain the optimal plant-based diet, improved appetite control, and in many cases, fat loss. I would love for you to check it out at nutritionally.com forward slash plant-based Kickstarter. The next course begins February 28th and registrations open very soon.